welcome to Oaken Bros. This is Eric. I'm Michael. And if you want to learn the secrets of the universe, the law of attraction, mysticism, brohood, gambling, movies, pop culture, archangels, magic, good food, business, health, family, NDEs, and mediumship, smash that subscribe button, hit the thumbs up, press the noti icon, and spread this video around like butter on toast. Love it. So today we have on Dr. Alexander, a uh, neurosurgeon and author who was driven into a week-long coma in 2008 and experienced a life-changing journey into another realm. Once awakened, he recorded his memories from his coma and he started to do research and, and was astonished by all the commonalities between his experience and other near-death survivors. He's the author of Proof of Heaven, Seeking Heaven, The Map of Heaven, and Living in a Mindful Universe. First, thank you for coming on, Doc. Well, Eric and Michael, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Wonderful. Uh, first question, before this all started for you, what were your thoughts on the afterlife? Well, you know, I had, um, my childhood was influenced by my father. He was an academic neurosurgeon. He was a chairman of neurosurgical training program. He was very scientific. He also was quite religious. I mean, I mean, he prayed, he knew the power of prayer and healing. Uh, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and like so many from that era, I always knew that science is the pathway to truth. Now, I wanted to believe a lot of what I heard in that Methodist church growing up in North Carolina, but in my uh, you know, 25, 30 plus year career in neurosurgery, including 15 years at Harvard Medical School, uh, I thought I had some idea of how brain, mind, and consciousness work, but I must confess I was uh, kind of seduced by the simplistic and false materialist or physicalist notions of the universe. And therefore, I thought the physical world is all that exists. The brain must somehow create consciousness. I realized there were some really deep uh, problems uh, around that issue that materialism really could not solve at all. But I thought we just needed to do more homework. And that's why, um, you know, I would say that when when I went into coma right up to that time, um, I had really wrestled and struggled with a lot of those issues, science, religion, afterlife, a belief in God. Uh, and in fact, as I tell in the book, Proof of Heaven, um, due to my adoption history, uh, I entered a dark night of the soul in February of 2000 and basically gave up on any uh, belief in a loving personal God or the power of prayer. And that had to do with the perceived rejection <clears throat> from my birth mother that I discovered in February 2000. And that's how I spent the next eight years until my coma. Uh, it turns out it was a cr crucial event, as people who've read Proof of Heaven will realize, uh, that I met my birth family a year before my coma. Um, and that set the stage for my NDE. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had wrestled and struggled with all this. I had a dark night of the soul where I lost all faith for the eight years before my coma. And then I spent seven days in coma that absolutely showed me the reality of eternity of soul and of consciousness. And, and the thing that kind of grabs the scientific community and the reason why this is very scientific and not based in any kind of religious beliefs, um, uh, but much more in kind of the neuroscience of consciousness is I, I came to realize the, the congruence of my experience with uh, you know thousands of other reported cases of NDEs over all millennia, over all belief systems, all continents, uh, there's a tremendous amount of consistency there when you start to study these. And you realize that the brain is not the producer of consciousness at all. 
And that's really where my NDE took me. And the great relief to me was within about two years of my coma, I started discovering uh, this uh, uh, very rich global community of scientists who were interested in consciousness uh, and was fully embraced by them. And, and of course, one of the things they loved about my story is how it's almost a perfect experimental prep to assess, you know, what does the brain have to do with consciousness? And uh, just as, uh, for example, we could discuss uh, some of the psychedelic drug studies that show that those phenomenal experiences due to psychedelic drugs involve the brain going dark, the brain turning off. They're not created by the brain. And that was something I knew full well from my own journey uh, because the medical documentation of the damage to my neocortex was, was uh, very clear. And in fact, there's a case report in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases in uh, September of 2018 that really made that clear. They reviewed my records. And uh, that, that was a big mystery to me is how could with this very well documented destruction of all eight lobes of my brain, um, my neocortex, how could I have the most robust, ultra real, memorable, complex and meaningful experience of my entire lifetime when my brain was offline? And that fits consistently with these psychedelic drug studies using fMRI and magnetoencephalography that basically show the brain is not the creator of all that phenomenal experience. It actually gets out of the way to allow that to happen. But it, I, I've been wanting to talk to you for over 10 years. I read Proof of Heaven. It was a life-defining book for myself. Um, take us on the adventure. I, I, I want to hear this from you. Take us on the adventure and, and go into as much detail as you want or as little detail as you want. Would love to hear this. Okay. Well, I'll give you kind of the, the medium version because to really go into it takes hours. But um, sure. I don't want to shortchange your listeners at all. Now, the important thing to point out is uh, even though uh, my NDE, when you measure it with the Grayson scale, which is a 32-point a maximum scale to look at NDEs and assess their uh, kind of nature and how uh, close to the ideal NDE they are, mine was in the top 2%. So it had a tremendous amount of overlap with other NDEs. But the reason I lost that last little but, uh, percentage point because I had a score of 29 out of a max of 32 is because of my amnesia. Uh, that is that in this journey, I had no memory of Evan Alexander's life, no knowledge of earth, of humanity. Every bit of it was gone. It was an empty slate. And that's really atypical for NDEs. But in many ways, it makes mine the exception that proves the rule uh, because of the uh, kind of aligned uh, evidence of damage to the brain. Now, it all started in a very primitive course, unresponsive realm. Uh, and I guess I need to give you a little more background, and that is about the medical history itself. I awoke at 4.30 in the morning, November 10th, 2008, with severe back pain, soon realized I had a horrific headache, um, and before long, I was uh, uh, developing uh, grand mal seizures, and I lapsed into deep coma, and that was all at home with my family very alarmed and watching. They hustled me off to the Lynchburg General Hospital emergency room. I was already deep in coma, and uh, the rest of the story unfolds from there. But that's where they did the lumbar puncture, found I had a, a bacterial meningitis on day two. They found out it was E. coli. If you do a medical literature search, you'll find E. coli basically always, if it causes meningitis, uh, the patient is always a newborn. 
it's very rare to be over age three months and have E. coli meningitis. And yet that's what I had. And that's what You're my doctors said. You got that you got that on a trip to Israel, I read, correct? That's well, actually, that's that's a fascinating story. I go into that in proof of heaven. Uh, yeah. But I'd been to Israel a few months before my coma I'm, as part of my work. Uh, and uh, in fact, I, I go into detail about that proof of heaven. I won't right. take much time on it here now. Right. Uh, but there had been a, a case of, of, of transfer of genetic material from one bacteria to another in Tel Aviv when I was over there. That was uh, the biggest nightmare imaginable for infectious disease specialists. Uh, and uh, that's not where I caught this E. coli. Although for a, while, for a few days, my doctors thought I had acquired this E. coli over there because it was so resistant to antibiotics and it was so relentless in its uh, destruction of my brain and body. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, people look at me today and say, we can't have been that sick, but that kind of begs the question. Uh, because in fact, I was that sick. That's what that case report makes very clear that my survival, uh, my, my doctors estimated I was down to a 2% chance of survival by the end of that week. Uh, at the beginning of the week, they estimated 10% chance that I would live through it. But by the end of the week, that was down to zero. And not only that, they thought the chances for any kind of recovery of function were nil. And that's why they recommended stopping the antibiotics. But to then get back to you know the core of the story, what did I experience right. deep in this coma? And the important thing from a neuroscientific viewpoint is that this all happened while all eight lobes of my brain had full thickness uh, damage and swelling uh, and attack by this uh, E. coli meningoencephalitis. It was a very severe case. And so in you fact, were brain my dead. recovery from that. Sorry, you you were brain you were you were brain dead basically. Brain right. dead, I would not use that term because that was the next step. You know, okay. uh, taking off of the ventilator, uh, uh, going through brain death criteria, that was all the next step to happen, you know, in the next few days after they made that decision to withdraw care. But they never went that far. But there's plenty of evidence from my, uh, from the scans, from the lab values, and especially from the neurologic exams that all eight lobes of my brain were badly affected. In fact, my Glasgow Coma Scale, now when you or me, the Glasgow Coma Scale, or GCS, would be 15. In a corpse, it's three. Anything below nine is deep coma. And for uh, almost the entirety of uh, those deep days in coma, uh, what I uh, had was a GCS of between six and seven. And there were probably wow. times when it was down to five. Uh, and I'm sorry, my dog is barking. I might have Fire to. Uh, it's, okay. <laughs> it's okay. You want him to be a part of the show? It's fine. <laughs> yeah, Copper. We'll see if he'll be, just be quiet on his own. So anyway, I want to get you back into what I experienced. The adventure. Yeah. yeah, the adventure. Again, completely amnesic. I had no knowledge of Earth. Uh, empty slate. Uh, as I went into this, and it started in what I call the earthworm's eye view. A very primitive, coarse, and unresponsive realm. It's like being in dirty jello, and I have a strong memory of, of roots or blood vessels all around me. I had no sense of body awareness during any part of the coma. There was never a sense that I, you know, I had uh, eyes and ears and all that, even though I was of aware, I was a piece of awareness so I could perceive and I could record. And in fact, one of the most astonishing things is that parts of this journey, you slip out of the apparent here and now that we normally have in our bodies and you start experiencing things across uh, greater expanses of space and time and even multidimensionality that is so, so hard to put into words. But anyway, back to this uh, earthworm eye view, very primitive course uh, start to this whole adventure. 
I'm sure I had no memory of moment to moment. So it seemed I'd always existed there. And when I would early on tell this story to people, they would say, was that earthworm eye view? Was that some kind of hell or purgatory? Uh, I would think hell would be at least a little bit interactive. And this realm, I, even though I had no language, I had no, no uh, words, uh, I could still kind of wonder who, what, where, how. Uh, and there was never a flick, a flicker of a response from that world around me, that universe. Uh, the good news is it didn't last forever. I was rescued by this slowly spinning, pure white light. It had, had an appearance kind of like ground glass, but it was absolutely uh, kind of pure in its essence as a source of light surrounding by these fine silvery and golden tendrils. And it was coming towards me very slowly and rotating. But one of the most beautiful things about it was it came packaged with a perfect musical melody. That earthworm I view, uh, my memory of it included a lot of things that we would label as kind of smells and sights and sounds and kind of environmental uh, inputs. Um, but uh, it was uh, something that there was a steady pounding sound, like somebody smashing an anvil very slowly and methodically that went on the whole time. It was almost like this form of torture to go <laughs> along with that earthworm eye view and the kind of coarse, uh, muddy uh, murkiness of it all. And that's why this uh, so slowly spinning white light that came towards me, it opened like a portal uh, and it had that beautiful musical melody associated with it. And this is what ushered me up into the Gateway Valley. And the Gateway Valley was uh, the best way to describe it. It was ultra real. It was much, much more real than anything I'd ever experienced here. Colors beyond the rainbow of absolutely rich uh, uh, kind of uh, ingredients. And again, as I said, this whole business of being able to perceive across great swathes of time and space, become other beings. It's what I call knowledge through identification. Uh, and that's what was going on in that, um, in that gateway valley. Now, for the, my entire exposure in the Gateway Valley, I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. And there were millions of other butterflies, and they were looping and spiraling in these vast formations over this lovely meadow. The meadow was lush with life. There were no signs of any death or decay. Uh, incredibly rich and fertile uh, plant life. I remember buds, blossoms, uh, flowers uh, blooming, all in this very rich, dynamic uh, texture. And... Um, uh, it was uh, something that really goes beyond any kind of words, even though I use earthly descriptions for a lot of it. There were sparkling waterfalls and the crystal blue pools. And um, there, there were thousands of beings dancing down in that meadow. And, and the way I kind of labeled it all when I came back to this world and wrote this all up, when I actually had language to describe it, uh, uh, which was weeks after my coma, I said that they were souls between lives because I recognized this kind of pure light body, uh, kind of purity and essence of there being the lots of joy and merriment, uh, very profound memories of children playing and of dogs jumping and all of this festivity going on in this meadow below me. Uh, and it was all being lit because up above were these billowing clouds of pure color and a blue black velvety sky. And I just remember uh, the best thing about it all was that I wasn't alone on the butterfly wing. And of course, I tell this story in great detail and proof of heaven. There was a beautiful young woman uh, sitting beside me there with these sparkling blue eyes and high cheekbones and uh, high forehead, a broad smile, 
uh, and soft, uh, soft light brown hair. She was dressed in the same kind of very simple garb as all those people in the valley down below, but with rich colors. Uh, all of it extremely rich. I'll never forget this kind of indigo blue and powder blue and this kind of uh, uh, kind of pastel peach uh, outfit she was wearing, just incredibly beautiful. And she looked at me with this look of pure love. And the most wonderful part of the journey, the most reassuring, and I think it's the core message that I was to bring back to this world, is, was her message to me. It was <clears throat> delivered telepathically, she never said a word. She never spoke a word. And yet I felt the uh, kind of emotional richness of her identity through her message to me. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are cared for. And I cannot tell you, but in that whole journey, beginning in that kind of murky earth where I view and then leading into this brilliant ultra real valley uh, with all of this uh, festivity going on, that was incredibly reassuring because I had no idea what was going on here. And, uh, you know, I was being kind of led along and shown all these things. Now, uh, Eric, I have to ask a question. Don, Evan, uh -huh. I, I've been wanting to ask you this for the longest time. This butterfly that you were on, how, how big it was it the size of a house? Was it this? Was it was it like a Disney ride, like riding on Peter Pan's flight, and and it, you're on this butterfly wing? Like how big is was it? A mutant butterfly? How big was this thing? Well, you know, butterfly in some ways, this was not like an insect you would find on Earth. Okay, okay. this was the idealized form of pure, liberated love and spirit, wings to fly. Butterflies are there for a big reason. Uh, there, you know, people often talk about various symbols like butterflies, hummingbirds, dragonflies, uh, owls, right. uh, that represent spirits of the dead that bring them messages, things like that. Right. I remember hearing, uh, uh Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you know, who wrote a lot about, about after death. Um, she was a, a, a Swiss, um, um, nurse and then psychiatrist, um, who uh, was there at the very end of World War II as a nursing student. She went through Dachau, uh, the concentration camp. It had just been liberated uh, weeks earlier, uh, and she was able to visit that place. And the thing that astonished her was when she s saw barracks that apparently was one of the uh, houses for a lot of the um, young children who were only there for a brief time before they went to the gas chambers, she she found that the children had etched butterflies into the wood of the wall. Hmm. And wow. she didn't understand that at first. Why would they be etching these butterflies? Uh, but it's because they were, you know, these were people who were seeing death all around them, who were facing death very imminently, and they had one foot in both worlds. And they were witnessing the kind of purveyors of that spiritual energy, which we, we see as butterflies. But you should not picture this as just a large insect. Picture it okay. almost like an absolutely magical living uh, magic carpet uh, that is wow. uh, taking you on a journey. It's uh, uh, Butterfly was the best term I could come up with because that kind Got of told, mentioned to me the color, the motion, right. the dynamics, the beauty of flow and of flight. Uh, but to think I was just riding around on an insect would be a little bit misleading. This <laughs> okay. Way. The spiritual so, idealized form of, um, you know, what we see in this world is butterflies. And they often are symbols and all of that. So that's, that's, but amazing. that's what I experienced in that uh, beautiful Gateway Valley.
I, I have a question and um, I've, I've been grappling yeah. with this um, thought, you know, everything produced by the human body is basically physical besides thought. Where, where does it come from? And it's been bothering me because like you're, you're, you're a neuroscientist and then you were also a spiritualist. Where does thought come from? Well, thought is what exists. Consciousness is what exists. The physical world is an extrapolation. It is something that is projected out of consciousness. And that's, you know, how our perceptions work. But the, the strange uh, thing about all this, uh, and this has to do with a scientific revolution that is far along in its uh, unfolding uh, and will revolutionize this world, but it has everything to do with realizing that the physical world has never existed other than as a projection from thought. So the thing that truly exists is the mental realm. Uh, and that's where the quantum physics, the neuroscience of consciousness, philosophy of mind, uh, human experience writ large, you know, NDEs, shared death experiences, after death communications, deathbed visions, uh, past life memories in children, suggestion of reincarnation. Every bit of that exists in that mental realm. And that's all we ever know. But this, this universe is clever enough that it kind of fools us into believing that all the out there is out there as a physical reality. And the biggest mistake, of course, is thinking that it runs independently of us, that we are somehow independent of that, that um, physical world. Uh, but we're not. We're, we are, we, the thing that uh, uh, needs to be understood, though, is that it all is organized in a mental layer, uh, and we have tremendous influence on the mental layer. You know, the me before coma, the physicalist, the neuroscientist, I thought the brain creates consciousness. It's all just, you know, the substance of the brain, which is made up of uh, uh, electrons, protons, atoms, molecules, the cells of the brain, etc. And I thought they all follow natural laws. In fact, the hardcore materialist neuroscientists will scoff at you if you claim to have free will because they think it's all purely chemical reactions and electron fluxes, that there's no such thing as consciousness, that it's an illusion, an epiphenomenon, they would say. <clears throat> so they would, <clears throat> that materialist science that I worshiped before my coma would proudly claim that it's just chemical reactions, there is no free will, uh, and you know any of this business of an NDE and illusions of existing as a conscious being after the brain goes inactive are false. Well, they're the ones who have it wrong. And in fact, the scientific evidence is really overwhelming. And what you find is when you look at this community of scientists who have an interest in all this, is that the more they get interested in consciousness and start reviewing this literature, the more they realize that materialism is dead. In fact, I would say it died 80 or 90 years ago with the advent of quantum physics. The mm -hmm. modern physics community, you know, there are many of them, uh, uh, physicists, uh, Roger Penrose, uh, Henry Stapp, Minas Kapatos, um, uh, Amit Goswami, uh, uh, Claude Swanson, um, Brian Josephson, who's a Nobel laureate. These are all examples of physicists who realize that consciousness uh, is much more than just product of the physical brain. Uh, and that's where all of the scientific community is, is headed on this. Um, is that why like the law of attraction and when you learn how to use it is so powerful? 
because the saying thoughts create things is 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 well, that why it's you know, kind of interconnected? I, except for one problem, and that is that where all this really connects, uh, you know, as near death experiencers by the millions have visited for thousands of years small continents, is a realm where the only thing that really matters is our relationships with others and the binding force of love in that world that the indie ear lives in. Um, it's all about love, compassion, uh, kindness, realizing we're all sharing one mind. I mean, truly, literally. So if you're hurting another, you're hurting yourself. This is something that's crystal clear from the life review uh, that occurs in more than 50% of near-death experiences, as it has going back for at least 2,500 years. The life review is interesting because most people describe it as re-experiencing the major teaching points of their life, but not from their own perspective. <clears throat> they witness them from the emotional perspective of those around them who were influenced by their actions and even their thoughts. So the life review is a beautiful example <clears throat> of how we're sharing one mind. I like to say we're, we're all sharing the dream of the one mind. Uh, and I like to use the metaphor uh, like this giant diamond, and the diamond is the one mind, the one consciousness that is actually evolving. Uh, it's not all-knowing. It is a dynamic process, uh, and it has all these facets like a diamond does. And each one of us, each sentient being, is a different facet. So we all have different perspectives of this, but we're all contributing to that dream of the one mind. And that's something that comes very clear in the life review. You talk with uh, lots of NDEers about it, and you start getting that picture. It's not from their perspective at all. So if you've handed out a lot of pain and suffering to others in your life review, you basically are on the business end receiving all that. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's actually kind of a neutral environment, except for the fact that that infinitely loving and healing force, that God force that is all around in that environment makes any of your actions that look selfish or greedy in this world look especially, you know, wrong. And, and, and that's why the life review in many ways gently nudges us uh, because it's really like the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated, written into the very fabric of the universe when you realize we're all truly in this together. Uh, and that involves not just humans, you know, that's uh, uh, <clears throat> one thing that I think we can say in the modern scientific era and study of consciousness is consciousness is something we share with animals and plants in many ways, going way down the evolutionary pathway. And the best way to look at it is that all of reality exists within consciousness. And the more we can understand and how those, that top-down causal principle of that one mind, uh, how it uses this kind of a multiple perspective view of multiple individual sentient beings that are all deeply connected uh, as this one mind, that's really the model to kind of look at as you come into an understanding of your relationship with the universe and this uh, evolving kind of scientific view of consciousness and what it is. Evan, but in that I want view, to... the brain, the brain oh, then becomes a filter. Okay, so the fil it yeah. filters in and allows in primordial mind, but it's not the creator. In fact, our brain is not even the repository of memories. As much as I believe that all my career, I did a lot of work studying um, memory, doing awake craniotomies in patients and uh, electrically stimulating the brain while they could report back to me the phenomena they experienced. Um, well, what you come to realize is the brain is not the creator of consciousness at all. It That's simply serves as a filter. And that's why when we die, we're released from the 
shackles of that prison of the physical body and brain. But we can use meditation, centering prayer. We can have spontaneous epiphanies, all kinds of things that show us that we're not truly just this body living birth to death. And that's all there is to it. Evan, uh, jumping back to proof of heaven, you said you saw angels, these, these beings that were shooting across the sky. Uh, real quick backstory. We lost our father uh, three years ago. Uh, he died February 2nd from uh, COPD. Smoked his whole life, wasn't giving it up, and he went out the way he wanted. Um, but we have our relationship with him evolved. Uh -huh. We we go to mediums. We have a medium by uh, George Anderson who we literally speak to our father. It's like the medium has him on the other phone, and he they have us on the other line. And my dad came through and said, archangels are real. Right. They they are on tap for the slightest prayer, any request that you want. Did you see these archangels in the sky when you were there? What what I saw, and this this is great because you bring me right back to the next stage of my story. Right. You know the <clears throat> in that uh, beautiful gateway valley with the lovely girl on the butterfly wing and all the souls dancing below. Well, it turns out that the next uh, step in the journey was that I realized all that festival down below me was being fueled by these swooping orbs of angelic beings up above. To me, they appeared to be uh, kind of oval, uh, golden spheres of pure spiritual essence. That is, each one of them appeared to be, you know, an individual advanced soul, like an archangel. Um, and they were swooping and leaving these golden trails against that blue-black velvety sky. And they were emanating chants and anthems and hymns that would just thunder through me, through my awareness. Uh, incredible awe and majesty. And all of that happening, uh, I'll never forget, it, right after encountering that beautiful girl on the butterfly wing, there was this soft summer breeze that blew through. And in many ways, it changed everything. Because even though the scene stayed the, stayed the same, that breeze to me, as I call it in my later writings, I said it was the breath of God or divine wind. It was my first knowing, uh, given my amnesic state, of the power and majesty and infinite healing love of that God force that permeated every bit of that realm and all the way down to the lower material realms. And then I ascended now uh, through these angelic choirs. They provided yet another portal, uh, a spinning light portal, kind of like a wormhole that led up to higher and higher levels. I remember seeing all of space-time collapsing down, four-dimensional space-time going first, and then this entire spiritual realm of the Gateway Valley, including a very different ordering of causality, which I call deep time. Very important to understand that time flow on Earth is part of the stage setting for our souls to live these lives, but there's a much more fundamental ordering that enables of uh, growth of souls and, in fact, the evolution of all consciousness that I call deep time. That it's a causal layer built into that kind of spiritual aspect of the, of the Gateway Valley. I saw all of that collapsing down. So you're really now getting into uh, outside of all of time and space and dimensionality. And that's where I encountered the core. The core was infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with that divine love of the healing God force. Uh, and I, re I remember this brilliant orb of light, brighter than a million stars, that was there in the core realm with me and that I sensed as kind of an interpreter. There was this kind of triangulation of relationship between this brilliant orb of light that some have postulated was kind of a Christ energy of, you know, ascendance and transformation. 
um, that uh, allowed me to interact and at times even become one with that loving God for us. And that was something, you know, some people think that an NDE just kind of magnifies your prior religious beliefs. Well, I promise you, I'd never had a religious belief that truly allowed me to become one with God in the way that I did in that NDE. What did that feel like? What did that feel like? What did that it's, feel like to become one with God? It's pure, infinite bliss. It is pure, infinite oneness. It's the most ultimate sense of being home, uh, you know, beyond... Uh, anything I could put into words. But the, the good thing is that others have experienced this, not just through NDEs, but you can cultivate it through meditation, centering prayer. That's why Karen and I do so much of the work that we do today. Now, in that core realm, important to point out that, and, and of course, this is conceptual flow, but I put it into words when I was writing this all down weeks later. I was informed every time entering the core realm, you're not here to stay. We'll teach you many things, but you'll be going back. Uh, and then, you know, a tremendous host of lessons about all the civilizations across the universe. There were many, many things. And I, I've, I've talked about a lot of those lessons in many of my talks and books and everything. We don't have time to go into all of it here. But the point I want to make is that then I would spontaneously drop back down to the lowest level. Now, right. that was a mystery. I would go right back down to the earth where my view of why, how. But the good news is I remember the musical notes of the melody. And just by remembering the musical notes, this is why music vibration frequency is so important. That's how our souls traverse those realms. And it's why a lot of the work I, I do today to return to those realms in meditation, I meditate an hour to a day. I use sacred acoustics, which is a form of differential frequency brainwave entrainment for deep meditation. For me, it's always a form of centering prayer. It's always a reuniting with that God force of pure love at the core of the universe, which allows you to truly get into the higher good for all involved. You leave that ego uh, behind. The little ego mind is very kind of self-centered. The ego serves a purpose. But, uh, you know, in these kind of rich spiritual journeys, the ego just gets in the way. And so it's important. I often point out to people in meditative um work here is the first step in meditation is to realize that little running stream of thoughts in your head. You know, many of us identify with that running stream of thoughts, but I would encourage you to look at it the way Michael Singer puts it in his book, The Untethered Soul. He calls that running stream of thoughts in the head, the annoying roommate. Yep, that's about all it is. It is not your consciousness. In fact, the deep mystery from a scientific viewpoint is your awareness of those thoughts. So that when uh, Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, what I would refine that to say is he was aware of his thoughts. It wasn't the thoughts that made him conscious. That's part of the linguistic brain. That's a very identifiable kind of parlor trick of the brain. But the awareness of them is the big, profound mystery. And that is, um, this is the experience I'm talking about into an NDE is becoming much more purely that unlimited awareness of who you truly are, higher soul. But then you realize your higher soul, just as you discover in life reviews, overlaps with all these other souls uh, and that we're all really part of one. And that one mind is of pure love, compassion, kindness. That's why we need to treat each other very differently than we tend to in a world that is today dominated dominated by materialist science with its false teaching of separation, that we're separate from each other. And of right. course, the first lesson in NDEs and life reviews is no, we're not separate. We're all truly in this together. 
uh, and we really, our best interest uh, for self is to have the interest of the higher good for all involved and all souls are involved. There are no souls that are part of eternal damnation that are you know, not worthy of this journey. We're all involved in this. And that's what the awakening that I see coming to the world today, based in the science of consciousness and objective truth that we can share, including quantum physics and neuroscience and philosophy of mind, is really one of unification and synthesis. And that was a message that came through uh, very clearly to me from my NDE. And then especially as I studied other NDEs and found a very similar uh, message. And uh, it's really astonishing, but it's a lesson that this world needs to learn now because we are really threatening ourselves with extinction through all the greed, kind of corporate greed and addiction of fossil fuels and uh, warfare, violence, uh, conflict, all these things that ignore the fact that we're actually part of one mind. Were you bummed out to come back? No. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of astonished to come back. Now, it's important to point out here that um, there were very few points on this journey where I felt like I was actually driving the bus. Okay. I was being shown things. I was being uh, allowed to traverse these realms, but with very minimal understanding of how I was doing it. And I was really a student. I was not there teaching anybody anything. I was learning a tremendous amount from the journey. Uh, and when I came back to this world, for one thing, I had no idea what I was returning to. You know, when my eyes first came open in that ICU bed on day seven of coma and uh, my mother, my sisters, my sons at the bedside, I had no idea who these beings were. Initially, really? I was just, you know, in total shock. It came back rapidly. I mean, literally over hours, my language was coming back, memories of these other souls. So I, I recognize, started recognizing them. Um, but uh, when I first came back, none of that was there. All I knew was where I had just been, this extraordinary journey. And of course, one of the reasons I was so quick to get down to write it all down was because I was sure it would disappear. My, my assumption, because I had none of my neuroscience knowledge, remember all that was still gone. It took about two months to come back uh, <laughs> after I came back. Um, and, but not only that, I really had no idea how sick I'd been. Uh, you know, it was in the coming weeks I started going through my medical records, uh, looking through the neurologic exams, the lab values, the uh, scans. And that's when I was going, wait a minute. You know, when I saw all the damage to the neocortex, all eight lobes of my brain involved with edema all the way down, swelling all the way down to the base of the neocortex. Uh, no way that brain was able to produce any kind of dream or hallucination. That's why this case garners so much attention from the medical community, because you take one look at the medical records and you just go, wait a minute, this is not a brain that should be able to generate any kind of experience other than, say, the tiniest little trickle. Uh, and in fact, for a while, I thought that the consciousness that I experienced as earthworms I view, that very kind of primitive murky realm, was about the best that my brain could muster when it was soaking in pus with this extremely aggressive bacterial meningoencephalitis. When you were there, when you were in the core, the only way as like my monkey human brain could even perceive, it would be like not on an airplane, but you being the airplane flying through the air. Is, am, I, am I giving it any justice of saying like, you know, you're, you're flying, like Dr. Strange. I don't know if you're a well, Marvel guy. 
Yeah, like I, I, I love Doctor Strange. Some people have accused me of being Doctor Strange, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if I would claim that at all. Um, but I, I think I, I need to say a few more things to put it in perspective. When Please. I talk about of uh, the material world and then the spiritual realm in deep time, all of those things collapsing down, they collapsed into a witnessed, uh, what I call the, a complex oversphere. So I saw this multidimensional collapse, and, and the dimensions were not just spatial, but temporal more than one temporal dimension, all of it collapsing down uh, into this complex oversphere. And then my sense of the core was of this vast void that was able to contain the entire higher dimensional multiverse throughout all of eternity and present it to me as this tiny little thing like a basketball. That should give you an idea of just kind of the scale and scope of what this involved. And then a lot of the kind of learning and knowledge, a lot of the experience that people have is uh, what I call knowledge through identification, where you actually become big swathes of the scene being presented to you. So in life review, you become the other beings around you. You feel their emotional power based on how your actions and thoughts influence them. And that's but kind you of still retain, the way you, you still retain you though, right? Like you still... It, there was yes, there was a me of awareness, but that right. that awareness during my journey had absolutely zero memory of Evan Alexander's experience as a human being. That was kind of the key, and that was absolutely essential. It is atypical for NDEs, I realize, and yet it has come to explain so much more about my journey, why I had this journey, how, how it fits in with everyone else's journey and understanding, and how it fits in with the emerging science. Do you think, I mean, do you think that was because like you weren't quite dead? Or, or is, is there like different severity, like mostly dead, you know, like in, in the Princess yeah, I, Bride? I, do, I strongly believe that you're, you're right in one sense. I was not quite dead in the sense that if I'd gone into full death, I would have had a complete then uh, reconnection with the memories of Evan Alexander's life. Now, it turns right. out in my journey, I did witness life reviews very profoundly in two different ways, but neither one allowed Evan Alexander's life review. Because, again, uh, being completely amnesic for my life was an absolutely essential part uh, of this. And uh, But the way I saw them, one was uh, this, uh, the first vision was of schools of flying fish. Uh, and it was this very strong sense that down in the material world, we were like fish down in the water. And we were kind of dumbed down. We didn't have full knowledge of our higher souls. Uh, you know, we come into this life remembering past lives and between lives, but those memories get covered up around age five or six. So it's very difficult to recover them after that time. And, uh, uh, but what I saw was the flying fish would then come out of the water. That's when we die and leave the physical realm. And that's when we reunite with higher souls and soul groups, go through life reviews, plan next incarnations for the further lessons. It's all a process of growth. You know, there's a religious tradition of saying that reincarnation is just you got to get off the wheel of suffering. This is not the same thing. This is really a progressive kind of evolution of consciousness like Taylor de Chardin wrote about in his mid 20th century book, The Phenomenon of Man. And I believe that's what's actually going on. But so the flying fish was one <laughs> of a metaphor that I saw in my visions for life reviews and reincarnation. But the other that was much richer and came at a different cycle through the core realm uh, was uh, uh, this thing that I kind of likened to Indra's net. It was the vision of our 
lives, our soul journeys as this giant tapestry of interwoven golden and silvery threads. And it, with the very uh, web and weave of this tapestry, I could sense uh, individual sentient beings across multiple civilizations across the cosmos, all in this kind of web and weave of coordination, of resonance, of breathing almost, you know, into the between lives, then down for another uh, incarnation, then between lives, incarnation, just like breathing, this oscillation. But it was always progressive and building towards something. And in the middle of this incredible Indra's net vision that I had, was this glowing core of knowledge and truth that in many ways resembled for me that brilliant orb of light that I saw in the core realm. And so it was an absolutely astonishing vision of reincarnation, of, uh, of past life, uh, uh, memories being incorporated, uh, re uh, a reunion with our soul group between lives and then planning of next incarnations. An incredible vision, but it showed me so much the richness of, uh, of that that whole process. So it makes no sense to look at it as one incarnation, you know, birth to death, and that's all there is to it. Were we, you know, when did we lose sight of spirituality? Did, back in time, were we more in touch with spirituality and more connected? That's a, a beautiful question. In fact, um, if people go to um, unitedinhopeandhealing.com, they can. Uh, uh, learn more about some of that and also a shift network course that we're doing right now. Uh, but really an excellent question because there is a definable point uh, in, in our history. When you look back over human history over the last few thousand years, certainly in our Western thought, um, was the Council of Trent. It, it happened from 1545 to 1563. That's when the, the uh, Roman Catholic Church was uh, threatened uh, with the uh, you know, voices of the Reformation and all that kind of thing. And they were trying to shore up their defenses and their message to the world. And in doing that, they became in many ways far more militant. And they allowed that there were people out there that wanted to study the natural world. People like Giordano Bruno, uh, the brilliant uh, Italian philosopher, uh, uh, mathematician, uh, who, who basically looked up at the night sky and saw stars and thought they were suns and maybe planets orbited them, maybe life forms on those planets. Uh, and he had a lot of other thoughts that the church didn't like. And they ended up, uh, um, you know, after this Council of Trent, they ended up uh, killing him, torturing and murdering uh, Bruno because of his views, uh, very modern views, very scientific views. He was one of my heroes. Uh, you know, for decades, and yet he was he was brutally tortured and murdered by the church because of the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent did the job of saying, well, you can study the natural world, but don't you dare come anywhere close to mind, consciousness, spirit. That is the realm of the church. And if anybody studying natural wow. science starts to tread on our territory, uh, then they are damned and they will be tortured and executed. Uh, Galileo, you know, he saw the moons of Jupiter through his telescope. He had an impulse to look at the moons through his telescope. The bishop refused. In fact, one of the groups I work with now, GalileoCommission.org, go visit their website. It's a group of more than 100 scientists from around the world uh, putting forth this whole uh, emerging view of consciousness as fundamental in the universe. But we call it Galileo Commission because 
Uh, you know, Galileo couldn't get his uncle to look through the scope. And there are people today who won't look through the scope, who don't review this data. Uh, from my point of view, the evidence of the afterlife and reincarnation is already so well established, it is absolutely beyond doubt. And yet, there are many scientific minds in the world who don't even bother to view the literature. They say that's all nonsense. They say they'd prefer a personal experience. They don't necessarily want more data. And yet, they're unwilling to study the data. But uh, the data is out there in droves, and the direction the scientific world is headed is irreversible. Uh, and it is towards a, a knowing of the primacy of consciousness in the universe. Uh, this is where we're your, headed. Your NDE, Eben, is, is, in my opinion, the gold standard of NDEs. You were a neurosurgeon who birthed to death, science, science, science. And it was almost like you were chosen by this, whatever this, this thing in the core was. It was like you were chosen to come back down to kind of elevate humanity and say, hey, this is what it's all about. It's about love. It's about spirituality. It's about, you know, being kind to each other. And I mean, we just came off a horrible year, right? We could all agree that 2020 was just awful all around. Do you feel that you were like kind of the chosen one, right? Like, uh, no. you know, you know, no, no, okay. I would say that we are, uh, you know, humanity, sentient life uh, throughout the cosmos. There are uh, countless numbers of, of, of souls that um, simply, uh, you know, represent kind of pathways forward and, and that have a kind of a unified message. And uh, I mean, I think the importance of mine is simply that I'm a neurosurgeon who had a meningoencephalitis that affected all eight lobes of his brain. So in other words, um, you know, I could have been a truck driver and had this beautiful experience. And just like when I came back to this world, uh, you know, and all my neurosurgical knowledge was gone. And my doctors told me, well, the dying plays all kinds of tricks. You can just forget about it. Well, I knew it was way too real to be real. So I wasn't going to forget about it. But I thought it was a vast hallucination. That's what my doctors told me. Uh, but I thought, wow, that was some hallucination. That's why I was busy writing it all down. But the more I wrote it down, the more I, uh, and, and I wrote the first 20,000 words before I read anybody else's NDE. Mm -hmm. That's because my older son, Evan IV, who was majoring in neuroscience in college at the time, when he came home, gave me a hug two days after I got out of the hospital, the day before Thanksgiving, 2008, um, he, he said there was like a light shining within me, like I was far more present than I'd ever been before. Uh, but I told him it was way too real to be real. I was already taking the lead of my doctors to think it had to be a vast hallucination. But Evan, only what does that mean? What does that mean, way too real to be real? Right now I'm talking to you means, on my computer screen. It means that as we're doing this right here in this material world, communicating with each other, it's a very dim uh, kind of murky form of kind of interaction with the universe. This is dreamlike compared hmm. to that. See, most people think, oh, an NDE, it must be very dreamlike. No, this is the dream. That is the reality. And more than half of NDEers come away with the same kind of astonishing sense of that reality. The other thing that's amazing when you study it, you know, from a medical perspective, is these uh, experiences. This is what Bruce Grayson has spent 40 years studying. Uh, he's the MD who's written more about uh, uh, NDEs than just about anybody. Um, is they're extremely transformative. They completely change people's lives. Uh, and the vast majority are changed very much for the better. 
Uh, and so, and not only that, but the memories, uh, you don't forget them. It, it's really astonishing. And there are groups both in the U.S. and in Europe that have studied the quality of these memories. And it turns out that they're uh, even a stronger quality memory than some of the powerful emotional memories we have from physical events, like a car wreck or a plane crash or something like that. These memories are very resilient. They do not change in quality over time. Uh, and, and so it really is showing us an aspect of ourselves and of, of experience of sentient beings that seems much closer to the truth and to reality just because of this memorability uh, and the fact that it is so consistent. They line up across, uh, you know, tens of thousands of comparable experiences. Um, and, and so in answering your question, I would say that these NDEs are always tailored to the individual. You know, ultimately, <clears throat> That's where their responsibility lies, is helping to transform the individual. And it just so happens that as a neurosurgeon uh, interested in consciousness, my journey uh, is of interest to the world at large because the world at large seems to be interested in that. But there are thousands of NDE experiences I've heard out there in the world that I think contribute a tremendous amount to this. So there is no way any of us can claim to be something special uh, about, uh, you know, being chosen for this mission. We're all in this together. I think that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that would say it doesn't exist. And the reason why they say it doesn't exist is because they may feel their life isn't fair, pain, suffering, loss. Why are we put through this? What, what, what is it? Is it because of the lesson to be learned? Why are we put through life when life can be pretty painful sometimes? Well, that is very uh, much the case. And what I will tell you is uh, uh, from my experience, and it's only been proven more and more strongly in the 12 years since then, uh, I came to realize that the hardships in life are the gifts. They are the milestones that mark our pathway forward. It's how we deal with the hardships. Are we able to kind of uh, envision our grander selves with our, our sense of, of having um, uh, you know, some kind of interplay with this evolving process and our ability to manifest this love for self and others. Can we do that through all these hardships? They are really the milestones that mark our pathway forward. And so I've come to look at uh, illness and injury in many ways as gifts. And you really have to take that bigger perspective, you know, not the little ego. And that's why if you simply dwell in your little ego mind and, you know, poor, poor me and uh, pity me about this and that little hardship, uh, you're not going to really make much progress. But by kind of uh, fully addressing the hardships and challenges in life and coming to realize that we have the power uh, to learn from them, to gain energy from them, to grow and transform from these hardships, that's where we really start to come into our own. And I would say this is not just true for the individual. It's true uh, on all scales, ethnic groups, national groups, humanity at large. In fact, right now, humanity, uh, you know, this, this all brings up this concept of a gift of desperation. That is a notion that comes out of addiction and alcoholism work. Uh, you know, I had my own uh, uh, struggles with alcohol, as I mentioned in Proof of Heaven. Uh, I stopped drinking in 1991. It was never an issue of work, but on my nights off, I leaned a little too heavily on that scotch. And uh, the reality is I came to realize uh, it was not doing me any good. And so I left it behind. And it was a beautiful gift of awakening. And I, I came to tell people I was a grateful recovering alcoholic, not for having gotten away from alcohol, but for having the disease in the first place. 
there was a lot of growth I went through that I never would have gone through if I hadn't had that challenge. Likewise, with my meningoencephalitis and with other issues in my life, I've come to embrace the hardships as being opportunities for me to express love, kindness, compassion for self and for others, uh, and to bring that into a healing environment. Uh, so I think there are some deep lessons from NDEs that enable us to take on this challenge. And I would say that gift of desperation is one being writ large with the COVID pandemic, the economic collapse resulting from that pandemic, the racial strife in the US exposed at the same time. These are all a collective gift of desperation that allows us to grow to a higher level. Now, if we sit there and pity ourselves and uh, you know, just dwell into the ego. The ego uses fear and anxiety as its main tools. And if we just sit there and circle the drain with that kind of self-centered, uh, kind of polarized, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna go down with this. We're gonna fall victim to these uh, these issues. But if we can rise above it and see all this as a collective gift of desperation, this is an opportunity for us to help each other and to grow into a much higher form as awakened beings here to support all fellow beings, no soul left behind. It's, oh, it's unbelievable. It's beautiful. It was beautiful. beautiful. Evan. Evan, how, what was your family's reaction when things started getting better and you're like, you gotta hear this. When I was comatose, I wasn't even there. What was your wife's reaction, your boy's reaction? Were they like, come on, dad, come on. Like, you know, like what? No, they, I mean, for one thing, they were just shocked because the doctors had promised them that, you know, by day seven with 2% chance of survival, no chance of recovery, I wasn't coming back. And when right. I first did come back those first few days, I think my family, initially they were ecstatic. And then very quickly, they realized my brain was wrecked. I mean, I was really trashed by this experience. Experience. And, uh, you know, if I had stayed like that, uh, it would have been a curse. They would have preferred that I went on to die. Uh, but I had a very rapid recovery. Uh, and as I said, within about two months, everything came back. In fact, my memories were more complete after that two month recovery than they had been before the coma. And that is from uh, deep conversations about very early life events with family and friends that I remembered some conversation before my coma concerning those events. And then a similar conversation afterward, which revealed that my memory content of those events was much richer. Uh, this is something we talk about in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, that memories are not stored in the brain. That's really the last nail in the coffin. Exactly. Living in a mindful universe. There's an appendix in that book, plus a whole chapter uh, about memory. And it was very clear to me after my experience that memories are not stored in the brain at all. This is something that neurosurgeons had suspected for a long time, just because of all the resections we've ever done, millions of uh, brain resections over the last century or so, but never has there been a swathe of uh, long-term memories that were taken out with part of the brain. Uh, so we gave up on that notion of brain localization of consciousness a while back, but to fully admit it is to say physicalism is dead. That makes sense because we go to mediums a lot and we get in touch with our father and he's reciting memories. So mm -hmm. obviously he took everything that he had in this life with him. Right. Uh, before, we, before we wrap up, um, do you have any mediumship capabilities? Do you go to mediums to connect with the other side? And also while you were there, um, did you see any of your past loved ones? 
don't 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 give the the twist at the end. I want the our no, listeners. I'm going to give that twist away because that actually answers your last question. Uh, that was actually the key catalyst for my uh, coming to understand all this much more richly. But um, yes, I have had experience with mediums, and in fact, I've supported Laura Lynn Jackson in her books uh, because she did some readings for me that were just slamming right on. And in fact, in that book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we discuss some of the details of that. Uh, I, we also talk about the Winbridge Institute, the work of Julie Beichel and uh, her husband. Uh, they've done a tremendous amount of work to scientifically validate mediums. Uh, I mean, anybody out there who, don't think, who doesn't think that mediumship is real uh, is simply unaware of the scientific data. And uh, in fact, to me, it's astonishing how powerful readings can be when you realize how little they have to work with. Um, and for a really, for a good medium, it's just mind bending what, and Laura Lynn, she challenged me on a number of things uh, in ways that proved she knew at a very deep level uh, things about my dad who had passed over four years before my coma that nobody else in the universe knew except for me. And uh, that's what basically took me to a whole next level uh, in working with her, but I've also met other mediums who I think are are very good at this. And of course, mediums will, by and large, tell you that we all have this capability. You don't need a medium, but yeah. you know, for most of us, we don't trust ourselves enough to do that. Uh, but this is why Karen and I um, do all of our work with sacred acoustics. Uh, that's why I meditate an hour to a day with sacred acoustics. People should go to sacredacoustics.com to learn more. Differential frequency brainwave entrainment is a very powerful way to liberate conscious awareness from the here and now and the kind of apparent confines of the physical uh, brain and the sense of personhood to allow your consciousness to roam free. And it's mainly because uh, differential frequency uh, tones uh, are slightly different frequencies to the two ears that intersect in the lower brainstem. Uh, and very unlike every other sound you've ever heard in your life that's processed up in circuits that arose in the last few million years in evolution of uh, primates and homo sapiens, uh, in the acoustic cortex, the sacred acoustics tones are influencing that lower brainstem circuit that's more than 300 million years old. And I believe it's that very ancient kind of involvement that uh, allows it to give us such a, a fundamental separation of, of kind of mind into primordial consciousness to basically bypass the veiling function of the brain. So I highly recommend anybody who's interested, go to sacredacoustics.com to learn more. Uh, go to unitedandhopeandhealing.com uh, to learn a lot more there. Um, and ebonalexander.com, there are a tremendous number of resources, a big reading list, a lot of blog postings that explain much more about my uh, journey and my uh, scientific work since then. Eben, thank, thank you a million times over for coming on. That was absolutely fascinating. And it makes me feel so good. It makes me feel so good when, good, when I have so conversations. It you know, well, it just it gives reassurance. Even though we are 100% believers, just, you know, I learned something new today about memories. And that's going to, if anything stayed with me from this show, is that your memories stay with you. And that's that's amazing absolutely. to me. Absolutely. My fa our father came through and he described the levels that you were talking about. He said, Dude. Mike, he said the levels, he said, it's infinite. He even, he even, uh, kind of coincided with the Kabbalah. And like, we were like, what's the, like, our father was yeah. not into Kabbalah at all. And he said, he's like, the Kabbalah is real. He's like, study the Kabbalah and you will get kind of like an inkling of what's going on over here. So well, the Kabbalah definitely hits a lot of high notes and resonates deeply oh with God. the sound truth of this. 
In fact, that's a, a lot of the work we're doing in the Shift Network course that we're just starting, as I mentioned. Uh, and it's really Karen's wisdom uh, that is reflected there. But uh, going all the way back to ancient Egypt yes, and showing how uh, the notions of oneness, uh, of sharing the one mind, um, uh, you know, really all originated uh, uh, in ancient Egypt and then were promulgated through uh, various levels to influence China, to influence India, to influence uh, the Middle East uh, and, and Greece and, and other forms of modern thought. But all of its centers uh, in those ancient traditions and to see it all coming full circle now with quantum physics and neuroscience is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I I was afraid to bring up the Kabbalah because like you know my dad was it was it was weird but once we started that journey of archangels and the Kabbalah and magic and the spirituality portion of it I mean it was it it really it's endless and that's what our father said it's endless over there you, it, this is not right. just like oh here's You're a guy in the sky. right our and he did say, never get bored I promise you that and he said that and he said there is no god he said it's not some guy in the sky pointing his finger saying you're right yeah. you're wrong you're going to hell you're not this is what we've been conveyed but we're going to log off now i anytime that you want to come on you have a platform with oaken bros thank you so much thanks Evan. so much well i appreciate that yeah i love i love talking with you guys so maybe we should do this again sometime Love that. It's appreciated. Right. Uh, everybody, please like, subscribe, and, and share this show. Check out ebenalexander.com for more information. Everyone, go by Proof of Heaven, The Map of Heaven, and Living in a Mindful Universe. You will not be disappointed. I'm a disciple of Evan, been that way for years, and really pleasure to talk to you. Hang on one second. We're going to sign off. And, um, you know, that's it. Everyone, like, subscribe, right. and share this video. Thanks, everyone. Well, thank Bye -bye. you all very much. Great talking thank with you. you. Thank, thank you. you.